Hello, I'm Ken Hollings. And I'm Julia Meyer. And we welcome you to The Bright Labyrinth. This is the first transmission in our series. And we're recording this live and without any edits whatsoever. So if anything goes wrong, we're going to leave it in. So you'll be amazed at how much we get faultlessly right. So the first transmission examines the mechanization of communication media from guns and propaganda campaigns to computer programming. So how did Nietzsche's typewriter influence his thinking? And does the digital regime impede or enhance the distribution of thought? Ken? I wanted to begin not just the series of transmissions, but the, 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 the starting point for our investigation with this, this fascinating device, which is the, the typewriter that Nietzsche started to use quite late in his writing career. Um, it, was the, it was known as the Malling Hansen Writing Ball, and it was specifically designed for, uh, to, or rather to enable uh, people who had very poor eyesight or indeed couldn't see at all, it would allow them to write. Um, Nietzsche at the time was suffering from tremendous ill health, he had very bad headaches, nausea, and he was slowly losing his eyesight. He, not surprisingly, didn't get on with having someone to dictate his, his books to, he didn't like that at all. So he went for this device, and he was very, very proud of using uh, this typewriter. It actually looks like a kind of robotic hedgehog when you see it. I mean, all the keys are sort of springing out of a kind of semicircular dome at the top and you press down on these keys. And what's interesting is that the, the platen where you put the paper in a typewriter is underneath, so you can't actually see what you're typing as you're typing it. But, Maling Hansen would point out, you don't need to, because you can't see anyway. <laughs> um, and Nietzsche loved this device. It was, it was difficult to use, but he loved it. And, and he proudly said of the, of the book uh, that he started writing using this machine, I am the first mechanized philosopher. Uh, in the history of Western thought. I am the first mechanized philosopher. And this statement, I think, is really potent. I don't think it's an accident, for example, that when Nietzsche had his uh, complete mental breakdown uh, 11, 11 years before his death, it takes place in Turin. And Turin at the time was the center of Italy's industrial revolution. This is where all their uh, typesetting plants were, where their printing presses were, where their film studios would be, where their car factories would be, and also where their typewriter factories yeah. would be. Uh, Olivetti. Olivetti, yeah. Olivetti, exactly. Um, and I think it's interesting that Nietzsche's chosen this city, which he loved, to go crazy in, literally go crazy well, in. It's Turin where he had his mental breakdown. It was, yes, with, indeed. With the horse, right? That's right. One morning, he, he left his, his, his uh, pension, uh, of this little square and he walked into the square and he saw a cab driver uh, mistreating uh, the horse that was pulling the cab and it was treating him very cruelly, treating the horse very cruelly. Nietzsche ran towards him, threw his arms around the horse to protect it and then collapsed to the ground uh, in, a, in a complete coma. He was taken back to his hotel room. Uh, when he later re revived or reawakened, his mind was gone. Um, and you know he, he alternated between fits of raving and madness and apathetic silence. Um, recounting that story now, it, it suddenly occurs to me that, that the, even the notion of the cab driver mistreating the horse, um, the basic uh, component of industrial energy, industrial might, is, was measured in horsepower. Yeah. You know, so in a sense, you, you know, you're looking at a machine. You know, the coupling of the horse with the cab and the driver. This is a machine that's that's about force and compulsion 
that's going out of control mm -hmm. and it's becoming unnecessarily uh, cruel. And again, a connection between the machine and the human somehow. Indeed, absolutely. And, and I think that Nietzsche is one of the first to understand that this relationship is uh, symbiotic. So it's not just that we create or influence the shape and design of machines, particularly when it comes to communication, but in turn that those machines influence how we think, how we write, how we communicate. Nietzsche famously wrote in a letter, our writing tools are also working on our thoughts. So he was very aware that thinking itself is not a fixed, uh, not a fixed dispassionate, objective, eternal thing. It is influenced by so many factors, climate, digestion, health, you know, un unacknowledged urges or desires or fears, jealousies or resentments. You know, there, the, the idea that there is some kind of dispassionate thinking going on, he says, is an absolute impossibility. It's a fantasy. doesn't happen. And the, intru the introduction of the machine into communication is just another factor that shapes and alters our thinking. So, for example, um, uh, you know, things like telegrams, uh, Morse code, newspaper headlines, stock market ticker tapes, all of which are, do are, are flourishing at the time mm. when Nietzsche is proclaiming himself to be the mechanized philosopher. All of these things are, in, are, are beginning to encroach upon our communication. And they are shortening it, they are compressing it, they are making it more direct. You know, it costs money to send a telegram, therefore you send, you send that message in as few words as possible. Mm -hmm. um, all of these things, you know, the headline is, is a classic act of compression. Um, and so again, we're dealing with force, we're dealing with um, yeah. a, a mechanized compulsion. Um, and I don't think it's a mistake or an accident that uh, the, 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 the development of the Industrial Revolution, so that it becomes a manufacturing concern, which was what was happening in northern Italy, goes hand in hand with, with a view of polit a, a political view, an ideological view, which is based around compulsion and yeah. force and coercion. So there's a, there's a, there's a guy called uh, Rulo uh, in uh, Berlin, uh, Franz Rulo. Uh, who was the head of the patent office and who had the attention and the ear of the Kaiser, which is how influential he was, who came up with this science called kinematics, mm -hmm. which is a study of how machine parts fit together in order to translate movement and power and energy. Because remember, at this point, machines are about power and force and energy, which now seems quite an alien concept to us. Um, but the way in which he described the machine was that something that compels or forces the, 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 the currents of nature uh, to operate on resistant bodies. This is how he defines the machine. And all the languages about this idea of coercion and force. As a result, um, it doesn't surprise me that you find um, during the, the, the latter part of the 19th century a moment when we move from... Um, communication machines like typewriters, obviously the Malling Hansen writing ball didn't quite catch on, um, but it, it was only one example of an increasing interest in like how can we mechanize writing, how can we make it more legible, easier. And there was one company in America who kind of for a while led the field, and this was Remington, who were based in New York, they were iron workers, engineers and they developed, they were the people responsible for the QWERTY arrangement that we still have on our laptops, like the laptops we've got in front of us now. This arrangement of keys based on the frequency with which 
individual letters in a word or a sentence, the frequency with which we need to access these letters determines their arrangement uh, in front of us. So the letters we use the most are gathered towards the centre, the ones we use the least are towards the outside of that that three-tier arrangement. Um, So they developed the QWERTY keyboard, but one of the reasons why they went into typewriters in the first place was because the business that they were originally in wasn't doing so well. They were actually gunsmiths. They made guns. And while they had a fabulous time during the American Civil War, supplying uh, armies and, uh, with, with firearms, revolvers, rifles, etc., all of which are uniform, all of which are mass-produced, all of which are designed to be um, very, very precisely calibrated, um, you know, as the NRA has discovered in the last 10 or 20 years, when you, when you don't have a war, you kind of don't have a good reason to sell guns. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. you know, rather than whipping up fear like the NRA has been doing for the last 10, 20, 30 years, Remington decided to go into typewriters. But they never left guns behind either. So I, I found it really interesting that the guy, uh, there was a guy called Thompson who was responsible for the developing of the QWERTY keyboard who later went on to design uh, one of the first machine guns mm. uh, that was used by the American Army in the First World War, which became nickname, its nickname was the Tommy Gun. Tommy <laughs> Gun was named after this guy, Thompson. Um, but what's interesting is that it later also became known as the Devil's Typewriter, or the Chicago Typewriter, particularly in, in, in that city because of the, the gangsters that were starting to use this use this weapon. So you have this really interesting, intricate relationship between yeah. guns and typewriters and keyboards. It's, it's well interesting and, and also it, it kind of reflects the, also the power in writing itself in terms of, of guns and oh, I see what you mean. the so potential the actu- in power that they have. So the actual rhetoric, particularly the visual rhetoric of, of typographic text yeah. is, is a powerful coercive thing. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. I think and you're as well right. metaphorically in, as, as the intent of thought Actually, also phonetically speaking, even mm. the sound when we're typewriting, mm. and the sound of, of a gun. Yeah, the cha 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 Yeah, there's, there's, yeah. there's some. There is a very close interesting connection. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in the in the in the transmission itself, I, I moved it towards uh, how particularly in, in later in Italy, uh, during the time of Mussolini and the fascists, mm. you find this interesting position where um, there is a um, you have the you know the. Fa- fascism embraced or futurism embraced fascism I'm not sure which it is but you have this kind of love affair going Mm. on between what is essentially the first modernist avant-garde movement in Europe the futurists who worship power and speed and dynamism as a a kind of aesthetic force but also a social and cultural one as well they they kind of love the fascists and the fascists love them back Mm. Um, but you have this kind of weird uh, situation where um, uh, design, typographic design, and these kind of political forces meet in in the work of, of one particular designer, a guy called uh, Zanti Jawinski, uh, who was part of the Bauhaus group. He left Germany because the Nazis were closing down Bauhaus, and he goes to Italy. To Italy. <laughs> and, uh, of course. What was he thinking? <laughs> um, so, uh, and he. Um, he, he sort of works for a, a design studio and he works for Olivetti. He, he designs a particular uh, a, a sort of brochure and poster campaign uh, for a particular model of, of Olivetti typewriter. Uh, but at the same time, he's also designing posters for uh, the fascists. He does one for a, 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 um, 
plebiscite, which is basically going to give Mussolini mm. more power. Um, and and when you see this this poster, the the it, the design is is wonder. I mean, it's stark. It's brutal. Uh, it, it kind of subsumes the crowd into Mussolini as this kind of powerful brooding figure. But the type is just almost bursting out of the poster at you. It's very simple. It's just, you know, it's, it's a plebiscite, so it's just the C, the word yes, big letters. And, and I think it's worth considering that, you know, this is... This is one of the currents that run through the modernist avant-garde, you know, and I think we shouldn't shirk away from it. I think we should acknowledge that, that mm -hmm. things like force and power and compulsion um, are very much tied up with the, with the avant-garde aesthetic at this time. Um, and, it's, and I think it's also worth bearing in mind as we move towards the, the, the other question that you posed, um, <laughs> that, that, you know, how does, how does this relate to the, the digital um, and I think that the, the relationship is actually still a very, very strong one, you know, that, that quite often um, one medium, as it were, absorbs another as it comes along, or it be, or it, but in being absorbed, but in, in absorbing that medium, it also becomes influenced by it. So I think it's, I think it's really interesting that we still use the QWERTY arrangement keyboard, um, that that's still the kind of basic... Um, tool. Most smartphones do it. I mean, some phones use a, a kind of A B C D E F type, almost like a you know New York telephone dial arrangement. Um, but the majority of phones still use a QWERTY arrangement yeah. for, for for touch. So we don't have that sense of pressure. We don't have that sense of pushing down hard on a key uh, in order to make an imp an impression on a page. But we're still we're, our fingers are still disciplined. To move in certain ways, um, so you know we are still within a kind of body of mechanized discipline. I think the only thing that kind of intercedes with that, or I think has an interesting potential, is is um, um, God, I've forgotten the word um, emoji. Nearly lost that second; it was just disappearing off into the corner of the room. I just <laughs> pulled it back in time. Um, what I find fascinating about emoji is not that it, I don't think it's going to replace anything. I think it has actually almost just created its own space. But what's interesting about the emoji is how do you organise them? You know, you there's no you, there's no qwerty arrangement yeah. for emoji unless it's one that the algorithm inside your phone picks up on, which is through frequent use. Yeah. But just looking at the way in which, for example, my phone organises and categorises emoji. I find really fascinating. So there's like a whole sports section, there's a food section, <laughs> yeah. there's a time and travel section. Um, but even just your your own section that um, mm. that basically comes up, as mm. we said, with the frequency used, and mm. is like this little dadaistic reflection of the individual using the phone itself. Okay, it that, could be um, like this weird uh, kind of uh, instead of words, your mm. emoji describing basically your. Mm type of you? language, who are you, and you, how yeah. you communicate, oh, and all that. Oh, God, I really wish you hadn't <laughs> said that, because my, my, my sort of, my, my pre-selected, these are the ones you want emoji includes, a purple octopus, the human <laughs> brain, uh, an explosion, a skull, and a flying saucer. I think that's you, Ken. <laughs> I'm, I can't argue. What about you? What are, what, what are yours? What are you, what? I'm just thinking, I, I think there has to be a weird animal around. I always look for the weird ones, and I send them out, like... Not like senseless. 
Yeah, just I think it's so strange. I think, I, I mean, I think secretly we all do. I don't think anyone actually it's sends. It's a guilty pleasure. Oh, <laughs> a <little bit>. okay. <laughs> but yeah, just just going back quickly to, mm. to Nietzsche's writing. While I was thinking that the machine kind of influenced mm. his way of of writing, so you can see it nowadays as well. Probably when we look at Twitter, as we also have certain number of letters or words you can write. I, I would agree. I mean, we are living in, a, in an aphoristic age. You know, we're, this, this is the age of the short, compressed statement. I mean, one of the reasons why I think Nietzsche could, could calmly say that the writing machine influences his, our thought. He means his thought, really. Um, usually, if he says we or our or humanity or the human spirit, he means him, basically. <laughs> the philosopher. It's him. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, once, you, once you understand that, Nietzsche is very easy to read. Um, but he was the master of the compressed aphoristic form, you know, a, a one or two sentence statement that just explodes when you read it. You know, it almost dares you to finish the thought. And, and so I think certainly... Yeah. Uh, God is dead. God is dead. Uh, yeah, but everyone forgets the second part. God is dead and we have killed him. And we have killed him. Yeah. Do that in an emoji. Dare you. We're going to wrap this one up because we're having too much fun. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, in the next transmission, the internet wants you dead. Uh, we have a live conversation recorded with uh, Li Yu Chu after supplement, so to give you a feel of the live events themselves as well. Uh, but we'll catch you on the transmission immediately following that one. But let's end with a small round of applause.